Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. You have been using Pretty Litter, have you not? I have, yes, for my three cats. Now, we know that when the cats do their business in the litter, it changes colors, right? What colors have you been seeing? Well, you know, I have been a little worried. It, so it's supposed to stay, um, like, I think, like, yellow, green, blue is like, a, is like a normal range. And my cats have been eating a lot of chipmunks recently. <gasps> but we are still in the normal range, so I'm still seeing the normal colors. They have a nice little color guide on the back of the bag to, you know, let you know what you should be alarmed if you see. And and all you have to do when you go down and you check and you scoop it out, you you know, you scoop out the poopy parts and then stir it up and it just disappears. So how is your house smelling these days? You know what? It's smelling pretty good. I, I have to tell you, I actually forgot to clean the litter box um, like one day this week and I was like, oh, shoot. And I, and I didn't remember because guess what? It didn't smell when I walked in my front door because that has some <laughs> is really good odor control. So not that I advocate skipping cleaning your litter box, but <laughs> if you do, your house isn't going to smell like one. Yeah, you won't have to forget about your kitty litter either because pretty litter gets shipped right to your door in a small lightweight bag that lasts an entire month so make the switch to pretty litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code crime for 20 percent off your crime. first order that's prettylitter.com promo code crime, crime. for 20 percent off check out wild fang a feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy and Wait, is what? committed to giving back. That's right, Kevin. Wild Fang wow. is female-founded and women-run, offering gender-smashing styles that borrow from the boys. A percentage of every purchase at wildfang.com goes to charity, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to fight for your rights. Go to wildfang.com and use code CRIME for 25% off. That's W-I-L-D. F-A-N-G dot com and use crime for 25% off. I'm Rebecca Lavoie and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about serial, true crime, pop culture, and this week, we return to Manitowoc County as Netflix releases its long-awaited sequel to Making a Murderer. We'll discuss the documentary's inside look at the ongoing cases of Stephen Avery and Brandon Dassey. Joining me to get that done is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Reporting for duty, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and a lady who has no idea who the person who plays Olivia Benson is on SVU, <laughs> Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. That's me. I, I liked her hairstyle. That's all I know. 
Oh, we know. We're going to get to that in just a second. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the brilliant author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and our very own Kathleen Zellner buzzkill, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Word up. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Laura, I just want to mention for our listeners, dropping a little bit later this week is an amazing episode of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast hosted by Kevin Flynn and featuring me. And this week, you are our special guest. <laughs> and I am, and um, I was in uh, uncharted waters. <laughs> well, we have a little clip to just demonstrate that, and we're going to drop it right here. Favorite Law & Order detective team. Of all the franchises, can you name two detectives? Or just tell us what they look like. Well, I can't. <laughs> so I looked it up because I'm going to tell you that um, my, my favorite detective um, is Mariska Haggerty because I like her. Hey, how do you say her name? Hargitay. Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> okay, let me say. Whatever no. her name is. You know what? I'm going to say it's the lady with the hairstyle that I always want and that will never work on my hair because my hair is too curvy and wavy. And I'm like, I really like her hair. So yes, Laura, um, you are still a wonderful guest and thank you very much for being on our other show. We really appreciate it. You know, I'm just mixing it up a little bit. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, A little piece of uh, news dropped this week. I just want to get each of your reactions to it quickly. Um, Netflix, which I think doesn't have a limit on how long they'll let something go, (laughs) um, has decided to end its great series, American Vandal, after its second season. Kevin, what did you think when you heard this news? Uh, I was a little disappointed, but, you know, I can see sort of the the joke has run its course. It it still was two very great seasons, but, you know, why not just leave them wanting more? Yeah. Toby, what do you think? Do you agree with Kevin? Yeah. I mean, it would would be too bad if the, the third season was not good. Yeah. So... You know, it just ends up being a really good series. That's true. Laura, do you agree? Yeah, I'm down with that. Um, You know, I liked it. It was entertaining. Um, It's not going to be the end of my life if I don't see a third season. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, I I really loved American Vandal. I think it is great as standing alone as it is with two near perfect seasons. And also there does come a point where a TV show involving alleged high school kids just looks stupid when the kids who play the kids are like 35 years old. So... Mm. Probably a good thought there, but uh, American Vandal, we will miss you. You were pretty great. (laughs) All right. Well, what do you guys think? We have a lot to talk about tonight. Should we just get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. Enter the cellos. Netflix has released Making a Murderer 2, the follow-up to the 2016 smash hit docuseries that captured the imagination of criminal justice reformers. The newest 10-episode series covers the years since the original series and shows how the success of Making a Murderer has both helped and hurt Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey's efforts to win their freedom. You know, some people, they feel really bad and sad and everything happened to me and... You know, sometimes it feels like you want to cry, but you can't. Kind of shock sometimes. You know. I didn't think all of these people would care. Instead of discussing the 10 episodes, we're going to break the show up into two storylines. We're going to be talking about Stephen Avery and his, I'm just going to say it, amazing lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, in the second half of the podcast. But in this half, we're going to talk about Brendan Dassey and his team. It was Dassey's confession that gave prosecutors the narrative of the how and why Teresa Hallback died. But when America saw the video of his interrogation in the original Making a Murderer, it became clear 
to just about everyone that the learning disabled teen was guessing the details until investigators said he got it right. Why would someone falsely confess to a crime that they didn't commit? They wanted this information in the worst way. So Brendan thinks if I tell them what they want to hear, I'm going to go home. And we are going to be discussing extensive spoilers of the second season of Making a Murderer. So if you just want to basically skip this whole podcast and go to our thumbs up or thumbs down review of season two, check the time in the show notes. We'll put the timing there for when we do that thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, early in Making a Murderer 2, we're introduced to two lawyers, Laura Nyrider and Stephen Drizzen. They work at the Pritzker School of Law's Wrongful Convictions of Youth Center, and they are wonderful. Uh, in fact, we hear that Nye Ryder was a student of Drizzen's, and Dassey's case was the first one she was ever assigned when she was a law student, and she's basically made it her life's work to defend this kid. I know that every time these two are on the screen, especially Laura Nye Ryder, who did most of the talking for the team, we know what's happened in this case. We've mm-hmm. covered on this podcast. I felt an unbelievable amount of dread every time I saw these optimistic, smart, and earnest lawyers on screen. How, how did you feel, Kevin? Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I like them. I mean, for the documentary, they're new characters, yep. which we don't have a lot of. And I was really inspired by them and to realize that they weren't Johnny-come-latelys, that this was something that they felt very strongly about and that they had been working on it for a long, long time. And they were an emotional touch point because you're right, we do know ultimately what's going to happen with this case, the disappointment. And so to see them happy and then see, you know, um, Brendan talking about getting out and what he's going to be doing, he's going to eat, you know, he wants to go get some French fries because he hasn't had French fries in a million years. It ends up being, I'm going to say, dramatically satisfying um, because it's so emotional. Toby, what do you think of this legal team, Nye Ryder and Drizzen? Did you like them as much as I did? And, and did you also feel that dread when you would see them on the screen? Yeah, no, I think they're totally likable. They seem to have the right reasons behind what they're doing. I just, uh, especially for her, I just worry that, you know, she's so emotionally invested in this. And I guess there's there's no way not to be somewhat emotionally invested, but you don't really see very much of it, but it must have been devastating. Mm. The setback after setback after setback. Defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. It was interesting to see just like how, you know, thoroughly they prepare in terms of reading decisions that each one of the judges has made uh, on similar cases and then arguing in front of different groups of people who are acting as judges and, you know, consulting with various experts and things like that. So there's, there's all this time and effort goes into what ends up being in the end like it seems like an almost, uh, at least for me, when and I guess we'll get to this in a minute. But when they when they when they do the actual hearing in front of the full group, it, it seems like you could have just not even had the hearing. Right. It seems like all the decisions had been made before anybody even went into the room. Yeah, it's a Kafka esque nightmare, right? So, Laura, you know, Kathleen Zellner's take on Dassey's legal team is an interesting one. Um, she seems yeah. to suggest that they are basically just going about their job the wrong way because she's had so much success. Uh, We hear in the documentary she's overturned 20 wrongful convictions and she's had so much success. And she basically says what they're doing is getting stuck in the law instead of telling courts a story. What do you think of that take? 
I, I thought it was interesting that they they actually showed her critiquing those lawyers. I thought, oof. I, you know, I was like, how's that going to go across um, when they end up watching this documentary? I can see, I can see her point. Which she's, you know, she's she's got her way that she does things, and that's the way that she has found that works. Um, I guess in terms of telling a story, to me, I feel like that would be more relevant if you were trying to convince a jury mm. instead of trying to convince a panel of justices. Because I feel like the panel of justices is is going to be, you would think, more reliant on the law and how it relates to the case as opposed to the story. Although, you know, I do feel like in listening to it, I felt like when Brandon's attorney, Laura, was arguing, I felt like, you know, what Toby was saying was she was just so emotionally invested that I felt like she kind of lost the ability at one point to kind of effectively argue because she was just so exasperated and upset with the line of questioning. But I, I guess I was just surprised that Kathleen Zellner was so, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because she's very bold, but that she was so bold to critique them in this documentary the way that she did. Because at first I'm like, wait, is she saying what I think she's saying? Right. I'm like, yeah, she is saying what I think she's well, saying. she's saying she yeah. would she's do it differently. Going. Yeah, she's yeah. saying yeah, she would do it differently, right? Yeah, yeah. She, she's, she's saying yeah. that. But I agree with Laura that at these appeals hearings, you're supposed to be arguing the law. This right. is specifically what this is. Telling them a story is is like what you would do. I mean, obviously, uh, Catherine Zellner has been, been doing appellate work for a long time, but I think I don't think that that needs to be the case. I, I think that you do have to argue the law. I found that based on the judges who were not going with Brendan on right. this, right, that those judges, based on their questioning and, and on their decisions, seem to start from the point of presumed guilt. Uh, now, of course, he has been found guilty. He no longer enjoys the presumption of innocence. But as far as the argument goes, it sounds like they assume that he's guilty. You know, it's kind of like it doesn't matter. He actually, he's guilty. He confessed it. Hmm. Which I don't think, I, I don't think whether or not he is truly innocent, actually innocent or actually guilty is the argument. Right. It's about the the process of the law. So he could have, he could be the killer and could be saying everything accurately, but if the the confession is involuntary and not coerced, that's different. But they're if saying the it was coerced, they never raised their voice. That's saying- not, they're not talking about coercion. Exactly. They're talking about something else involuntarily given. It just seems like they came at it from a completely different way that just isn't the way I saw it. Well, here's the lesson that I took away that I hope everybody listening to this podcast who maybe is not super political can think about. You know how you hear all the time about the power of elected officials to appoint judges? These appeals, these federal appeals court judges are appointed at the very high levels of government, right? This is where people talk about the Supreme Court a lot. They don't think a lot about these appeals courts. Mm -hmm. And these judges in these appeals courts are really like not just making like shaping laws, but they are really they have the lives of real people in their hands in cases like this. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just important to think about not that like one political side would do it one way, another would another way. But when you listen to the arguments that these judges make. And when you listen to that, what was it, the Solicitor General of the state talking about the separation of federal versus state and the powers here, you realize this is a very political process for these judges in a way. And Mm -hmm. I just think it's something worth thinking about. And it's like a bigger idea that the documentary doesn't point to. But I know it's like when the Wisconsin DA, when he was outside the courtroom and gave that quick interview, he talked all about sort of the, yeah, which was never argued by anybody. Yes, it's like, what are you talking about? There was never that argument made by anybody. It was very strange. And it really pointed out really how political a lot of this is. Mm -hmm. 
I guess I missed that because I was distracted by Ken Kratz giving a press conference <laughs> well, out there. Like, uh-huh. what? Let's talk about that because uh, Ken Kratz does appear not so much in the Avery part of the story. Oh, but sure he does. He does, but he makes his grand in-person appearance in this documentary during the Dassey part of the story at this courthouse. And I really love what Dassey's legal team says. Like, we are in a hollowed place. A place where generally the best lawyers practice, the arguments that are made are, are elevated. Um, it's a very dignified place. And I think when the arguments were happening in court, it was at a very high level and it respected the process. And then we came downstairs and there was all this commotion. And I went over and walked over to see what was happening. And Ken Kratz was holding a press conference. And then he comes and gives this circus of a press conference where he's promoting but not promoting his new book in the lobby on a case that he's no longer working on and that he's been, like, disgraced after leaving office for all this misconduct. Uh, Laura Bricker, um, how do you feel about the fact that Ken Kratz just won't frickin' go away? I just, you know what? It's motivating me to keep going to my boxing class. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't stand it when he because he shows up and I'm like, why are you still here? You are not involved in this anymore. Nobody wants to see your face or listen to your swarmy little voice um, at this point, Ken Kratz. Um, and then the next time they interviewed me, he was he was at CrimeCon. I'm like, w- what is this? Like, you know, I just it's it's really frustrating to see the way he's inserting himself. Like, I you know, and I they did talk about that a little bit ethically that it was pretty unusual the way that he was maintaining this connection and commenting on this case and you know move on um you oh, know rebecca i'm getting a reading on the brichter scale Lara, <laughs> <laughs> what is your rating on the brichter scale when it comes to ken kratz um it's higher than len kaczynski because at least he had a cat in his picture um <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> Ken Kratz, I was just like, every time he started talking, I was like, oh, like, I, you know, it's like turning into the Hulk or something watching him. Now, Toby, you sent me a couple interesting notes about Kratz. You're curious as to what he was like in high school. And you now want to go to CrimeCon to meet him. Can you tell us why? He's such an odd guy that I think it would be pretty amusing to have a beer with him and just like kind of get his thoughts on life hmm. yeah I, you know it's what, what Lars said I, I just don't I mean I, I'm not sure what else that guy's got going on so <laughs> it doesn't surprise me much <laughs> that given like his track record and stuff that he is milking this for as much as it's worth I mean you just think back to the the ridiculous press conferences he had while the while the case was ongoing He's like that friend who you you don't want to run into at parties because they're always acting like totally inappropriately, and it's just like God, oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> and that that's Ken Kratz, but with the world instead of just at a party. Yeah, like all those guys are just as freaking odious as they originally were. <laughs> like you want to think you're remembering it wrong, right? And I, I mean, I I wrote this note, and you know, it's kind of like throughout the series, it's like. 
the, the return of all these incredibly slappable characters that you remember so much from season one. You've got Ken Kratz. You've got Len Kaczynski. You have that uh, Nancy Grace lady who runs the lab. Uh, you have <laughs> Coburn, the, you know, super smarmy and shady cop. How are all these people in power? Like, they all have all the power. And it's like... I, they really are just as bad as I remember them being. It's really amazing. And it's like you want to think because I know we'll talk about it in a minute, like the credibility issues with the one sidedness of this film. You want to think like, oh, maybe I'm remembering this wrong. And then as soon as Ken Kratz opens his freaking mouth, you're like, oh, I'm not remembering him wrong <laughs> at all. Now, Kevin, give me your take. Uh, Len Kaczynski also makes a return. Present day Len Kaczynski. Yeah, too short <laughs> and too long at the same time. <laughs> what do you mean? He's a guy who deserves to get slapped in the face. He he was such a big part of Brendan getting railroaded. Yep. I think we're just we are just briefly reminded that the federal appeals did not, you know, look further into the the ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Long term, the whole thing with the involuntary confession has run its course. Mm. It can't be you know, the Supreme Court won't look at it, so that's that. And you wonder about what other legal avenues do they have? And maybe it's, you know, looking for um, reconsideration on that, right. uh, on the ineffective assistance of counsel, because he was definitely working against his right. his client. Right. And well, the, the, but they do imply late in the series that if like new evidence, like if, if something happens in the Avery case, it mm-hmm. could help him. They imply that. They don't say it directly, but that's sort of implied. One thing I want to talk about stylistically uh, we see it twice on the three-panel courtroom scene and then on the full-panel mm-hmm. courtroom scene. This very wacky, like, Super Friends, 1970s Super Friends style <laughs> <laughs> recreation of these scenes where we just see unmoving drawings with audio. Um, Toby, what'd you think of that, that way of, of presenting this audio-only courtroom scene? Make the mouse move, man. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix, for God's sakes. Do a Beavis and Butthead or something. <laughs> like, I get what the issue is, is that you've got audio and you've got to show people who's talking and how do you do it in a way that's not just putting names on a blank screen or, on the other hand, my suggestion, which is like, you know, totally ham it up. It's not elegant, but it does what it needs to do, which is to let you know who's talking at various times in a way that's not quite as mind-numbing as just putting a name up on a screen. Right, and we also got pictures of the justices and Laura in the three-panel justice situation, and we saw the same the same justices later in the larger uh, panel. Those two yeah. awesome women, the one with I the big them. hair and the other one. Mm-hmm. I found myself like reacting viscerally when I would see the the drawing of the dissenting guy from the three judge I panel. Hated him. <laughs> yeah. With the steely blue eyes. Uh, yes. He just looked evil. He looked like um, Peter Graves from Mission Impossible. <laughs> but it was it was really it was pretty creative. They had a lot of creative use of graphics in this second season that actually really worked to help illustrate how you know, the court system worked and how the appeals process worked and where was the helpful. quarry was. Yeah. <laughs> I just kept thinking about um, the season premiere of Modern Family this season. When, uh, <laughs> Mitchell is trying his first criminal case and he's super pissed because the sketch artist has made him look ugly in the courtroom sketches. <laughs> and yeah. it turns out that he was the Airbnb client that, that, that they over. against him. Yes, yes. But ultimately, Brendan Dassey's case gets the overturned verdict, gets vacated. It goes to one court that upholds it. The second large panel 
in a tiny minuscule number of cases for some reason decides to take up this case, which is why I believe it is a political thing. I really, really do. Upholds the vacated thing that the lower court did. Goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't take it. Case done. The legal avenues for Brennan Dassey, as we know, are over. So on this argument, on yes. this argument. So um, do we all agree at this point in the series? And I know we've talked about this and the show. I think we all have feelings about Brandon Dassey's lack of culpability. We've talked about that before. I feel that this is a unmitigated American tragedy, Brendan Dassey's story. Where are you guys on that? Yeah, it's it's just absolutely heartbreaking. And I think the thing that really brought it home at the end of, of his part of the case is when they play the audio of him reading that letter to his supporters. Dear people in the world, thank you for listening to me. It means a lot to know there are many people who believe in me. I am innocent of the rape and murder of Teresa Halbach. My confession is false. It always has been. And it's so earnest, but it also, listening to him read it and thinking about him writing it, you recognize, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple letter. And it sort of drives home the point of who he is and why it's so tragic that he is still in jail. What about you, Toby? It's obviously like he he doesn't he doesn't belong in jail. I mean, I think that's that's it's hard to question that. What I think is kind of interesting, at least for me to think about, is like why why did it work this way? There's some value to the idea that it'd be hard to overturn serious convictions like that. In that, if you are as a system putting that much faith in the idea that you know, a trial in front of a jury is going to end up almost all of the time in the right verdict. Mm. Like, I don't necessarily, I don't agree that that is the case, but if that was the case and that's sort of what you're putting your faith in, in our justice system, then it seems as though it should be difficult to overturn those decisions. And while I think this is like an egregious case, like right now I'm reading uh, for the for the Deep Dive Book Club, uh, reading Homicide mm-hmm. uh, by David Simon, which has a lot of stuff about uh, interrogations. And, and these detectives who are in this book are the protagonists, but it's definitely like they want to get the stupid people, the naive people in there because of those people can be manipulated into making confessions. Right. Whereas the smart and the savvy just keep their mouths shut. It's it's part of the system. This is a particularly egregious case of it, and it's a case that's gotten a ton of publicity. So it seems it seems different, but I'm not sure how much of an outlier it is as far as people with sort of the learning deficits that, that Brendan has when they get in trouble, like what happens. And that's why you see, you know, there's always these controversies about these people with very low IQs being executed. Right. And, and you wonder how much that played a part in their being on death row. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with everything that both of you said. And I think that the another element that we get introduced to, which was absent from Making a Murderer season one, is Brendan's dad, who was not a character in season one. We meet him in season two. Uh, he seems like a very nice man who loves feeding his birds in their birdhouses. He's got a lot of inexplicable fencing around his garage and property. But to see that, you know, that he has this larger family, you know, and you see all those gifts in his house that people have sent him and you see that his mom has his room ready for him when he comes home. And yeah, it's 
an unmitigated American tragedy. Right, Kevin? Absolutely. Uh, I am uh, rage walking thinking about this. It just seems so self-evident that what had happened with that confession was was not the way it should be and that it ended up changing his life. It changed the course of this investigation. And I think that if there are holes in the Stephen Avery case, uh, based on the state's claim of what happened, it's in part because they got this false confession out of Brendan Dassey that shaped the narrative of how puzzle yeah. pieces are supposed to and fit together. I, I don't think that making a murderer season two, I, the one that was one that was missing is they, they didn't remind us that that is where that bullshit story came from. It came from this. Mm-hmm. Everything they said about Avery came from this. If we're all willing to say this confession was total bullshit, then we should be willing to say that everything we think about what Stephen Avery made yeah. and Teresa Hallback is also bullshit. Yeah, it's more than just oh well, he uh, he he said that uh, you know he went under the hood and his, his DNA was on the latch, and it, it's not the fact that you know they fed him a you know they set him up and led him into that answer. It's more about well, okay, well then that happens, and then you know there was a rape. You know, there really isn't any evidence of a rape, right? So do you even know if that happened? That had to like suddenly fit into. The evidence that, that they were coming up with, I just, I, I don't know. It gets my panties in a bunch, which is why I need Tommy John underwear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's an excellent and very classy transition, Kevin. Hey, the holidays are approaching fast, and now is not the time for nutcrackers. That's right. Thankfully, Tommy John <laughs> is the revolutionary clothing company that's redefining comfort for men and women. Tommy John underwear sports a no-wedgie guarantee. Comfortable. Stay put waistband and a range of fabrics that are luxurious, soft, feather light, moisture wicking, breathable, and designed to move with you. Oh, Rebecca, you're pulling out your thong? I am. It's not a thong. Oh. It's just regular Tommy John amazing underwear. Okay. I love them. They have a no wedgie guarantee. You can't pull it out that I way. I just pulled it out that way. It did not give me oh a wedgie. Oh my gosh, you're right. It they're, so, they're so stretchy Wait. and breathable. Yeah. You of the Winnie the Pooh is telling her not to pull it out? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> Yeah. Remember when Brendan was like, I can't wait to go home. I have my own underwear. Exactly. Well, oh, somebody God. should be sending him some Tommy I John. Agree. I will send him some when he gets out. Underwear. Yes. Or you can even give him a gift with the limited edition holiday gifts. There's something for everyone on your list. Naughty or nice. Give the gift of mind blowing comfort this holiday season with limited edition holiday gifts from Tommy John. Plus save 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash crime. Crime. That's TommyJohn.com slash crime for 20% off. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. What else you got, Kevin? Well, we're also sponsored by Brooklinen. Oh, we love Brooklinen. Named the winner of the best online betting category Deserved. by Good Housekeeping. Brooklinen is the fastest growing betting brand in the world, they now have over 20,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot. I think at least four of them came from this panel. I may have done more than one, so maybe five. These are the sheets that are five-star hotel quality sheets, and you get to have them every day because uh, you get to have this luxury sheet without the luxury markup. Their method, eliminating the middleman. Yeah. It's also... You know, part of what makes the sheets like really good are the fabrics that yeah. they're using and the fibers. Yeah. Go to their website and read the story. It's really interesting about the cotton fiber. Essentially, they use a longer thread hmm. so that it has a smoother feel. So, you know, the way they manufacture the sheet itself is 
wonderful, and you've got a lot of great styles to choose from. Our Brooklinen sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets that we've ever slept on. Brooklinen is giving an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Great. No other podcast, just ours. Tell me. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use the promo code CWO. CWO. At brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so sure that you will love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. But the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code CWO CWO. at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N. See, it's a pun, brooklinen.com. Promo code CWO, Brooklinen. These really are the best sheets ever. And they come with an awesome tote bag because the sheets come in like an awesome little tote bag. You can repurpose it as a tote bag. I use it as my lunch bag, a little Brooklyn and tote bag. Right, Laura? I do. I have my little tote bag. I don't use it for that, but I use it. It's it's really handy. I use it in summer for like carrying things around when you're going to the beach or something. I know. And it says Brooklyn on it and like, that's cool. People think you're cool. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's a cool tote bag. I feel like they should talk about that in their ad. If they're listening, we'll talk about that. We'll even throw in a tote bag and an apple pie with every purchase. (laughs) It's like listening to public radio. Get a freaking tote bag. All right, moving on. The main focus of Making a Murderer 2 remains Stephen Avery, the Wisconsin man wrongly convicted of rape who later was convicted of murdering a young photographer named Teresa Hallback. We rejoin Avery in the months after Making a Murderer's release. The notoriety hasn't won him an exoneration, but it did win him the services of Kathleen Zellner, one of the country's most tenacious wrongful conviction lawyers. Prominent attorney Kathleen Zellner, best known for overturning wrongful convictions, has taken the Avery case. I have one goal, and that's to overturn the conviction of Stephen Avery. Zelda gets very hands-on conducting her own testing and investigation into Avery's case. Though she finds a new take on the physical evidence and settles on a different set of actors, her defense is the same. Someone other than Stephen Avery shot, dismembered, and burned the body of Teresa Hallback, and the local sheriff's office planted DNA to frame him. There's a lot based on that bullet. This is critical. There's an abundance of evidence. This could flip the whole case. All right, there's some things I want to get out of the way at the beginning of this conversation because I don't want them to distract us from some of the other elements of the story, so let's just do it right now. Uh-huh. Question one, Kathleen Zellner, do you love her, hate her, or something in between, and briefly explain why? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. You know what? I went into this because my only experience with her was all of her tweets preparing not to like her. I came out of it like... She's pretty badass. I'm waiting for her to have like a glass of whiskey and a cigar. Uh, I mean, she shoots guns. Um, She's pretty no nonsense. She's a little bit odd. But you know what? I appreciate the, you know, way that she approaches the cases and the enthusiasm. And I'm going to tell you one other reason why I really love her. Um, I just checked her Twitter feed just now while we were chatting. And her most recent tweet says, So the sweaty, sexting ex-prosecutor Ken Kratz, who has never met the likes of my experts, is blabbing again with junk science with a suspended law license. I'm like, yes. Um, So I was like, that just makes me love her even more. The sweating, sexting, blabbing Ken Kratz. Thank you, Kathleen Zellner. All right, Toby Ball. Kathleen Zellner, lover, hater, or something in between? And briefly explain why. I guess I'm somewhere in between. I disagree a little bit with Laura in that I think she's sort of a weird combination of no nonsense and complete nonsense at times. 
I, I kind of found some of the stuff that she was doing a little hard to take seriously. But at the same time, I mean, she comes across as a very sympathetic person, uh, smart and resourceful and things like that. I, I, I have some questions about what she thought she was going to accomplish in this is what she actually ended up accomplishing. And I think she also does some stuff that I think is mostly for show. Mm. And I wonder if she would be doing it the same way if the cameras weren't on the whole time. But, uh, you know, so I'm kind of a mixed bag, although, you know, if I had to give a thumbs up or thumbs down, I would definitely give a thumbs up. Yeah, I'll agree with Laura that I went into this with one impression and left with another. And I even started the series with one impression with some of that earlier evidence we see, the brain fingerprinting, the sort of stuff that's less conventional. Then later, when it becomes a lot more solid, I found myself really getting in her corner. And even when she would say things that were provocative, when she would say, put somebody else in the frame, she would very reasonably say, this is a legal strategy. And I'm sorry if it is offensive to say, I think this other person may have done it, but that is how I will exonerate this man. And that's how it works. And then she has some quirks that I also love. I love it that she has a driver. I love that every yeah, single person in her weird. office, like every single person in her office to a person is super attractive. Like that's like odd in a weird way that I kind of like, even though it makes me uncomfortable. Obviously, <laughs> I love her clothing very much. I've talked about that a lot on Twitter. And, you know, her whole the way that she is at small moments, she's incredibly considerate, patient and kind with Avery's family and with Avery himself on the phone. And then a small moment, Kevin, that really stuck out to me was when she went to file those papers at the courthouse and she had that throng of reporters following her. Like she knew it was going to be a scene. They Uh planned for it. She shows up. She knows she's making a scene. But then the reporters want to interview her. And she said, you know what? Let's not do this in the office. Let's go outside because then we'll be in the way of other people who want to come in this office. That is not like Michael Avenatti showboating. That's actually like a person who has situational awareness, which speaks to a, like in a real heart. That is a small detail that I, I just picked up and it made me kind of that was the moment where I sort of switched to being full on team Kathleen. Where are you with Kathleen, Kevin? I, I'm in the middle, too. I mean, she's very accomplished. And so you have to respect her ability to work for her client. And she was definitely giving the best counsel that she can. I mean, she's she's. I mean, I think she's footing the bill for all these uh, tests and all these experts and whatnot. And she, you know, I think she honestly believes in Stephen Avery's innocence. There's sometimes, though, I, I I like the way Toby put it. She's like no nonsense and all nonsense at mm. the same time. You know, she would be talking about, you know, some bit of evidence and say, oh, well, there's no other ex- explanation for that except that they planted the DNA. And I'm like... No, there are other explanations for that. You know, just because there's no bone on the on the bullet, it's like, well, uh, okay, well, maybe maybe it did go through a fleshy part of the. You know, I mean, that's an explanation. I'm not saying that's what it is. Maybe this one went through her th- thigh, not through her head. Yeah. yeah. Or again, you say, well, maybe that isn't the bullet, but somehow her DNA is on it, and it's just. I guess I wasn't crazy about all of the conclusions that she came to, especially the ones that ended up hurting the Dassey family. And I know you have to kind of go at where you think the evidence leads you in the advocacy for your client, but some of it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. All right. Well, let's talk about another thing that I want to get out of the way that's going to be a tough subject, mm-hmm. and that is the point of view of this documentary. A lot of people did not participate. Oh, they show you that. <laughs> they show you that. And it is clearly more, way more one side than the other. And I, I believe, I'll just say it, 
I believe the filmmakers would have included more of the other side if they had a, had access. I do believe that. I, I give them credit for at least showing who they tried to talk to, who wouldn't talk to them in every episode, because it does show that they would have. But obviously, they were not getting that participation. So I think we that get, was the criticism of the first season. Of course, it was. was that, yeah. So we get largely so one right. side. They so, address it right. Yeah. So Kevin, do you think that that makes this entire thing uncredible? Where are you on no, the one side? No, not uncredible. But I mean, I think you're right. You don't have as complete a picture as you think. This is one of the criticisms we have with Serial this season: is that the police department has refused to cooperate with the the podcast so you don't get that point of view and so a lot of times when we're talking about oh, well this seems like one-sided some of that is attributed to the fact that they're not participating in the message so you know can you really complain that it went someplace that you didn't think so I mean I don't think the family necessarily is are they complaining you know I, I don't think that they can complain about the direction of the documentary if they don't participate yeah, I actually completely agree with you. I, I'll tell you, as somebody who's written true crime, along with you, Kevin, when people complain about your book or your movie or your article, but then when they, we you had requested an interview and they refused the interview, there's nothing you can do except say what they have said publicly. There's nothing you can do except play tape of them walking in and out of things. There's mm-hmm. nothing you can do except show recordings of them and what they've said on TV, which they did in this show, they showed on TV what the brother said. They mm-hmm. showed there's nothing else you can do. And I'm not saying the, fil- the filmmakers don't have a point of view because they clearly do because they were attracted to this project, as we know, because they were attracted to Stephen Avery's story. I don't think it takes away all credibility. I think as long as you're aware of it, that's what matters. I know that Toby has strong I, feelings as he keeps trying to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and man. <laughs> Go ahead and mansplain your feelings to us, Toby. Do it. <laughs> yes. What you little ladies don't understand. <laughs> you little um, lady documentarians. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wild Fang oh. is not sending anything to Toby's house. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I, I guess my feeling is I, I kind of disagree with you in that I think the idea that if you don't cooperate, then you're fair game. Um, you know, I think that. I didn't hear me say that. I think they could have. Fair, we didn't yeah. say fair game. No, they didn't if this is a journalistically reported story and you offer them the opportunity to comment and they choose not to comment, well, that's their decision. The story goes forward. Nobody attacked yeah. the family. They just weren't in it. I think the way in which what, what ends up happening is they, re, is they are sort of uncritical of the other point of view. And I think the idea that just because one side doesn't talk to you that you can't consider objections to... What what's being put forth uh, on uh-huh. Avery and Dassey's behalf? I don't buy that as mm. an argument. I think it's harder, but I think you know, an honest you know, if you're trying to give sort of an honest appraisal of the entire situation, that part of what you have to do is find a way to question what's going on with 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 Zellner. And because I mean, that was one of the things that I found frustrating is so you're sort of following and this is especially true with with the Dassey side of things. But, uh, you know, also with Avery is that when they get these setbacks, there's no it's just like, oh, that sucks. It's so unjust. And I don't think you need to get somebody from the Manitowoc Sheriff's Department or you need to get somebody from the Hallback family. I mean, there's plenty of other people you can get to comment on this stuff. They just choose not to. I don't think that when somebody declines to participate that it absolves the documentarian from doing an accurate portrayal of 
facts around them and what their perceptions may be. I do think, however, it forfeits their right to be credible when it says they when they say they have a complaint about the direction it went or how something about them was portrayed. If they participated and they felt like everything was taken out of context, then they have a beef. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. I half agree with you. So I'll, I'll give an example. And one is uh, Teresa Hallback's roommate, that guy with the, guy. the beard and yeah, the long the one hair. Guy. Yep. And they're just like, oh, he didn't want to talk to us. And, you know, hmm, you know, that seems suspicious. And it's like, well, no, she doesn't want to talk to you. The If there's one lesson that this entire thing has taught you is when you start talking, you get in trouble. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would do exactly the same thing. So when I take a look at this documentary, to me, it's a well-made, interesting documentary about one side of a post-conviction effort. But that's all that it is. Laura, thoughts? They reached out to people. They tried to get people to participate. These people knew this this documentary was going forward. If they wanted to shape how they were portrayed, they could have spoken. And and that's something I have run into so many times as a reporter. And it's very hard because, you know, you try to be fair. and And I always, even in difficult stories, would reach out to people Hey, I'm writing this story. I know you probably don't want to say anything. This is what the story is going to say. If you want to participate, you need you need to say something. And people wouldn't. And then they would complain about how the story came out. And you're like, I gave you the opportunity. You didn't want to take part. The story is going whether you are talking or not because I have all this other information. So it's a very frustrating position to be in when you are putting something together, you know, as a journalist. And obviously documentary, this has, you know, a little bit more of an editorial slant, to put it mildly. Um, but I I didn't mind it as much um, because to me it reminded me more of like the staircase mm. um, where we had that very, you know, that window into the defense world. And that's what we have here. We have this like window into the defense team on both sides and what's going into this case really from behind the scenes. So it's just, a it's that really in-depth perspective that we're getting here. Um, And it is frustrating that everybody didn't take part. So I think we've all said how we feel about this. I just want to tell one quick anecdote, which is not related to making a murderer, but reminds me of this, which is that it does seem sometimes in cases that are like sensational, that the people who are willing to like really put themselves out there are often like the worst actors. <laughs> so in Making a Murder, yeah. you've got Ken Kratz and Len Kaczynski who have no freaking problem being the spokespeople for the prosecution when they're both complete nutcases. And it reminds me a little bit of in our state this week, there's a state lawmaker who's embroiled in controversy because <laughs> he allegedly assaulted a porn filmmaker with whom he was making a porn film. And yeah, they kind of buried the lead on this story. <laughs> no, the lawmaker was making porn films. Right. But he allegedly got assaulted mad because he didn't like his scene. Right. And then his whole thing was, no, this is just coming up for the election. Like, and there's literally footage of him making a porn film. He's like, I was making tourism that movies. you can never like, unsee. Tourism, like, tourism of my And yet he's actually giving interviews to yeah. everyone. And so it's like, why are the bad actors always willing to talk well, is, with the good isn't this people how, or not? How Stephen Avery got a new fiance? Well, that's what mm-hmm. we're going to talk. We're going to talk about it. So let, yes. let's let's move on. Uh, quick thoughts on one last thing. Um, anyone here feel bad that Kathleen Zellner is trying to prove an ineffective assistance counsel of case against my boyfriend, uh, Dean Strang, and his partner, Jerry Buting? Anyone feel bad about that? I did a little bit. And then I... <laughs> I was like, oh, and I actually inquired of some of my defense attorney friends and they, they were don't like, care. yeah, 
No, they said, but you know, they're like, yeah, but this is showing that they should have done more work the first time around in terms of getting experts to come in. I'm like, well, financially, they may not have been able to. That's right. So I did feel a little, you know, they may not have had these unlimited resources or experts that are willing to consult because they want to be affiliated with you. So... I felt bad. I I do think that this show does a good job at first of making us feel bad about that. Then it cuts to them saying, like, that's what we would do (laughs) if we were also picking up this case, because that's what you do when you're trying to get someone post-fiction. But then also, like... um, Hate the game, not the player. They also show... But she does do a good job, I think, showing examples of them doing things in court and then not following the thread. And that happens a bunch of times. But it's trial strategy. I I know. Is any of that, like, really... I know. That would have changed the case? Mm. She's just really, really, uh, in terms of the amount of work she does, is on a whole different plane. Laura Bricker, she bought a Toyota Rav Four, <laughs> and blood. The blood. I'm like, where is she getting all this blood? <laughs> like... But she, but she also embraces the theory that it was a it was a setup more than they did. Well, no, I think they embraced that theory. They were the ones, remember, who did the whole thing where the blood had been taken from the tube. They totally thought the evidence was planted. That was their theory. But aren't they the ones who said, you know, when you're saying the cops set them up, like that's not usually a winning argument in court? Yeah. They did, but they also believed the cops set them up because they're the ones who introduced the tampered stuff. They kind of played with that, but that wasn't their like the main thrust, right. I don't think. I mean, they just thought he was innocent. They could get him off as being innocent. Whereas Kathleen Zellner is like, you know, in the end, it's like a conspiracy of thousands to set them up. Well, to be fair, Strang and Buting did go on a national tour and they did say in front of live audiences that they believe that the police set Stephen Avery up for this crime. I know that they did. Like, mm-hmm. that's what they actually believed. They just didn't think it would work in the courtroom. So that is, right. I think it's legitimate to say that was strategy. Um, so, Ke- Kevin, let's talk about, like, the scenes with the Avery's family. Yeah, th- I think that's the emotional center of this. The way too long emotional center of this documentary? Well, okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so yeah, we have I to acknowledge that, that they got a deal. Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of filler. The documentarian's got a deal for 10 episodes. And they had to fill 10 episodes. And, I mean, there's really, like, six episodes Don't you think here? that's yeah. a trend with Netflix? A lot of these series we've talked about yeah. have just been too long. They've been too long. Yeah, yeah they've been trying to, they, they have been trying to do 45 minutes of work Let's in a Let's be real. Episode 10 of this series could have been the whole series. It, it could have been. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there were some things there. I mean, again, I think you 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 like the parents, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, you know, trying to turn on the stove, like oh, the freaking frack, the two of them. What do you want it on? Is it hot? The uh, bur- is the burner hot? Put it on. Yeah. Is that the right one for that? Huh? Is that the right one for that burner? You know, they're like your parents. They remind me so much of your parents. How can you like get in the car and drive six hours to your son's prison? I didn't bring my wallet. Yeah, it just. um, But you know, again, since we don't get to see Stephen Avery, yeah, it, it makes it hard to create any sort of emotional bond with him as a character. But you can't do it with this family. And, you know, the whole idea that time is ticking, yeah. you know, wears on them. We see that. Right. Uh, now, Toby, a uh, detail that I was wondering, found myself wondering about, and I don't know if you noticed this kind of thing. Stephen Avery is in this huge Shawshank-like prison that is apparently sitting in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Isn't that weird? I was thinking about, like, kids, like, 
throwing around a football or whatever, and it just like goes over the wall. <laughs> yes. You're like, Fuck. Go back. Go back. Because when that happened in my house, it was like you had to jump into the neighbor's yard and get it. Yeah, it was. It was totally weird. It's like, oh, you know, you park on the street and then you walk around to the entrance to this prison. Hey, Toby, drugs get in that prison somehow. It might as well be a kid's football. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you got to put those kids to work. <laughs> Can I, can I just one thing about like all that Avery family footage yeah. yeah, is that I found myself during the time that I was watching it, like when I was going and like doing stuff by myself, like taking out the garbage or, you know, bringing in the groceries from the car. And I would just kind of imagine what it would look like if you were playing like that kind of plaintive music in the background. Jealous. And it was like, you know, this is the Paul's family's existence now. Now that young Jacob is in jail. Would you be wearing overalls? As, as a dad like trudges with his groceries to his to his door. A lot I mean, of B roll. A lot of B roll. Yeah, it's like yeah. if you if you put that music behind it, it's like like all these sort of like kind of normal things. Everyone's life becomes tragic. Really no, it's true. Yeah. There's a lot in the garage. So a lot much. Of lugging yeah. around yeah. and his poor dad can hardly walk and I'm just like, Yeah, we've oh, seen this. God. We have. Yeah, it's like know? we, we get like it. walking like sideways. It's just so sad. It's like we get it. Netflix, we get it. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is. It's, it's a high school essay that's supposed to be 10 pages long and really only is six. Yes. And so it's yeah. Yeah. very, no, very, totally. very, very good. Well, that's How just, good is it? It's very, very, very good. Can we talk about one part? That was very, very, very good. We need to talk about Stephen Avery's lady problems. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so Stephen Avery obviously has his longer-term girlfriend, Sandy, who, through the magic of graphics, I came to finally realize is six years younger than his mother. <laughs> and that's his uh, long-term girlfriend. And then they break up and enter luscious, lying Lynn, um, <laughs> the grifter girlfriend who, while being driven to visit him in prison, says, I've never seen so much agriculture, uh, and then tells the documentary makers a quote. I knew in my soul it was going to be a part of my life. And I knew that if there was another season of the documentary that I was going to be in it as Stephen's girlfriend. Oh, we see you, Lynn. We see you. Uh, <laughs> Laura, yeah. what did you think of this chapter of the documentary that featured Stephen Avery's lady problems? I mean, I, it's not surprising because you hear about people that have like the prison pen pals. And then, you know, I always find it interesting that people that get married when they're in prison and they've never actually met or touched or anything. I'm like, oh, you know, to each their own. But I'm watching like he's getting all these proposals. And then this woman shows up. I'm like, well, oh, she's pretty attractive. And I'm like, oh, this is <laughs> Kevin really and I both been int- like. Whoa. Yeah. I, I was like, boom, chicka, bow, bow. I'm I like, what is going on here? And then she's like driving and she's like very well dressed in her very nice car. And then out comes the story where she really just wants to be in the documentary. And I'm like, but they kind of just dropped that. And then we never saw her again. And I'm like, well, are they still engaged? No. She went on no. Dr. Like, Phil. Remember? I guess, but they didn't include that. Did I miss that? Yes. Did I fall asleep during oh, that shit. part? shit. Laura, you missed the juiciest part of this whole damn thing if you missed that. Huh? Toby, you didn't miss that part, did you? Where she went on Dr. Phil? Yeah, she's like afraid for her life. Yes, what the how whole? Did I miss that. She basically <laughs> broke up with him on Doctor Phil, and yeah. that's how. And that's yeah. how he watched it in prison. That's how he found out. Oh, I, the whole thing was kind of weird. He's like, "Yeah, I kissed her. I, I French kissed her." Oh, like, Jesus oh right, dude. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to know that. Oh, I French kissed her. Oh, I never gee. felt this way before. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like. like 
It's like alarm bell should be going off, dude. Yeah, well, this like, to me is like like the weirdness around Stephen Avery is we've been told by these filmmakers that his IQ is low, right? Not as low as Brendan's, but yeah. low. And but he also seems at times so whip smart, bright. He's filed a ton of his own legal paperwork. Mm. He's become like a legal expert. You hear him on the phone with Zellner, and he, and he kind of seems like really aware of the parts of the process. He uses the right legal terminology. He's really with it. He's like able to sort of make very cogent sort of, you know, conversations. Yeah. But then I think so in okay. many parts of this. And then he's just like, I mean, I guess that's just sort of part of being isolated and in prison. But you just realize like, oh, no, he's still Stephen Avery. He <laughs> <It's like, laughs> picked up by a grifter. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, well, let's talk about the later episodes before we wrap this up, because I think Zellner's evidentiary storyline gets a lot better in the latter ha- part of the series. The evidence test she does seem more grounded in reality. We're not talking about brain fingerprinting. Uh, what we're talking about is, you know, I think something compelling. Lack of schmutz on the swab for the hood latch. Like, it should have black schmutz on it. Uh, a plausible theory about the source of the planted DNA, but please never say groin swab ever again in front of me. Uh, a compelling reason why Officer Coburn called in Teresa's plate before the car was discovered. Remember that detail? Yeah. So once she actually finds a potential explanation for that. Yeah. The bullet tests. Hello, Kathleen Zellner shooting a gun. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, bad. And my favorite. See, that, but that's. That's part of the bullshit, though. I understand. But my maybe the way that we saw it was bullshit. But, you know, the evidence was there. Real expert. I looked him up. Her experts are all legit experts. They're legit. But my actual favorite piece of boring evidence that she found, because it was boring, it was the most compelling, was that printed out Outlook calendar with the handwritten notes mm-hmm. that matched yes. the phone calls. That was, ex- I was like, whoa. Yeah, that was amazing. It was. So, Laura, do you think that she's making a better case in these later episodes with all of this more grounded evidence? I do, because in the first half, I was just like, um, yeah, because she gives this whole like, I don't take on clients unless they're innocent. And I'm like, OK, that sounds good for the documentary. But like the the percentage of clients that are actually really innocent is I mean, like she wouldn't have any clients, um, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. But it was made for good TV. But But some of her theories in the beginning were like, you know just so far-fetched to me like I'm like I even with your experts I just can't get my head around the fact that cops are going to go scrape off blood from the sink and then plant it somewhere else I'm like that just doesn't even how much blood has to be in the sink so it's still (laughs) liquid 20 minutes after he uh, yeah but they're thorough she she went in and took that sink her damn self yeah yeah when we get into the second part I definitely like her her experts and her her line of reasoning and her theories I was like oh that actually kind of makes sense to me like yeah okay so the guy at the the, you know the quarry next door and the police not wanting to tell his story you know we've got the computer Brady violation with um that fucking Brady violation theory was so chilling because it was like yeah I mean, what else could it have been? I mean, she na- I, th- yeah. I think she nailed that one. But the one that started it all, like you said, was this thing about the calendar because she goes through this very, and it makes sense. And I'm like, this is when it started to make sense. I'm like, oh, so if she prints out the calendar and she writes on it, it's the day of, and it would have been with her. So how the hell did he get it? I mean, I still, I'm like, that was very compelling. And that really, 
didn't add up that he just mysteriously had this calendar because it it, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened. Well, it, it added up because the phone calls matched the the things she wrote. Yeah, the phone yeah. calls like they show that this person yeah. called her and then she wrote a thing that she would have written down when she talked to that person. It was I thought that yeah. was the most compelling, the stupid paper yeah. freaking Outlook calendar. I mean, there's blood, there's a Rav Four, there's all this like showy stuff. And yeah. then I'm like, I cannot believe this whole thing is turning for me on a printed out fucking Outlook calendar page, which is like <laughs> the most like dumb. Well, I just I, I kind of feel like, OK, so that's compelling. How does that fit into her sort of alternative theory? Yeah. It means she left the property. That's what it means. It means she left the Avery property because she would have written those things after she left. No, but it also means that 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 guy Villegas or whatever his last name is had access to the car before she was found. Like I was kind of with her for a while and I was and and I still think she's made a pretty good case that that it wasn't Avery, but I think her alternative theory is weird and a little bit tough to it's just so it's like we're I'm going to get everybody who could possibly be a suspect and have them all be a part of the the final. It's, it's yeah. like uh, was it murder on the Orient Express? Like it wasn't one of you. It was all of you. Yeah. There's still five people. I don't disagree with you at all on that. I really don't. I think that Villegas and I, I, I think that she kind of goes there later, but less at the beginning. He clearly was helping the cops with whatever it was they were doing. We don't know what his intentions were. We don't know why he did. But to me, I think she makes a good case that they pulled him in to saying, like, help us out, blah, blah, blah. Maybe he was the one to move the car. Maybe he wasn't. Like, who cares? Yeah, you but also like, could just been appropriately no, helping. Why, who yeah. cares? That's insane. Like, <laughs> why, why would the cops be like, hey, dude, can you move your dead ex-girlfriend's because car? Because you know how these cops are, Toby. Because the they would trust that guy? They would trust somebody they don't even know to, like, be part of the biggest conspiracy? Like, why don't they just do it themselves, A? I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, all this stuff is like, well, you know, there were two guys who did this one thing, and then the cops, without knowing it was them, stumbled upon the car, and they, like, covered it up to make it look like Stephen Avery did it. And, oh, yeah, by the way, because, you know, Villegas had had this calendar, and he must have been a part of it, the cops asked him to move the car and then it's like, well, then, like, wait, who burned the remains? Like, what? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's just, it just seemed crazy. The theory of who did it was convoluted and how they did it was convoluted. But there were parts that sung to me like, yeah, they, 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 they rang out like there's something here yes. that is that shows the cover up happened. That that to yes. me was the most compelling parts that to me that the parts that showed the police malfeasance were the most compelling parts. And that yes. like. The, the calendar thing was huge to me. <laughs> Fucking groin DNA. Like, stop it with the saying that. But, like, all this clean DNA showing up on things, which is insane. Yeah. Well, yeah. the places they got her DNA. Her vibrator? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say. It's like, stop it with the vibrator. Don't, like, yeah. don't show it. Like, like, blur that out, making a murderer of people, please. No, there was definitely the second half. I mean, you, you had this part, and then you had the woman that was the coroner. That was, like, enraged me. The woman that was the coroner that wasn't even allowed to go out, and they were threatening to arrest her, and she actually had jurisdiction over them. I'm like, what is this? I mean, that was super fishy. Huh? What? We're getting another reading on the Brickter scale. 
No, that that was the part when I really lost it when that poor woman came on and, and I'm like, how did did they not talk about this in the first season? Do I not remember this? No, it wasn't and, uh, in the first season. And I'm like, oh my god! And she's telling this story, and I'm like. You're kidding me, right? You are the boss and they won't let you go to the crime scene and they're telling you it's because there's a lawsuit that you're not even involved in, but they're out there? What the fuck? But did the coroner from the other county go? Because... I don't know. Because this, that was that was the story given to us. Is we're not having any county officials go because of this conflict of but interest. But Lank and Coburn were there, and well, they were named yeah. in the right. first everybody else. But we already lawsuit. know that that's an issue. Right. But we know it's an issue with two people. Right. All right. So we, we all know. This is like a cluster. Track. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And then I, I think that we could go back and forth on arguing the merits of Kathleen Zellner's like, theories this way or that. I think the question, the final question here is before we review this, like, where are we on Stephen Avery's innocence or guilt now after watching the second part of Making a Murderer? Toby, where are you now after seeing everything that Kathleen Zellner showed us? So I think she makes a compelling case that there's a lot of evidence that it wasn't him. So I was with her there. When she gave her alternative theory of the crime, which she feels like is like the key I just thought that that was so insane that that was the best that she could come up with. It made it started to trouble me again. Uh, my guess, I don't even want to guess because I, I just I don't trust the filmmakers yeah. quite honestly. Yep. The way the film has got it set up, it seems as though there's enough evidence to cause real doubt about his guilt. I just I just I I don't trust the filmmakers enough. So I'm still sort of like, I don't have any strong feeling. What about you, Laura? Where are you on Stephen Avery right now? It's tough. I mean, I I feel very strongly about Brennan Dassey. With Stephen Avery, I feel like there's definitely, there was a lot of unfairness in the way his case was handled. I really don't know who did what. I, I don't know if it was him. I don't know if it was somebody else. I don't think the case was handled properly. One of the things that really, like, I started, like, percolating on was this computer that had all the torture porn on it. I was thinking about, like, child suggestibility people that talk about, and I was like, maybe this is where Brendan Dassey just being exposed to looking at this concocted this wild story because his brother was always looking at this stuff and who knows who did what. But I mean, that could be where this whole idea came from. Of shackles and stuff, you mean? Yeah, because all that stuff was on like all the crazy porn that was on the computer that his brother, you know, that it seems like his brother looked at a lot. So that's where he could have seen things like that to be like, yeah, that's what happened. Not that, you know what I mean? Like it just seemed kind of- Yeah, that's a good point. Because, like, they, there's this whole, like, series of, like, um, research into children and how suggestible they are and at younger ages. But it's, like, little things like that can suddenly, like, I saw a picture and all of a sudden it's a whole story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know what about Stephen Avery, but I, I feel like it's definitely highlighted just that this case was just handled super improperly, again, that we already knew. Um, so, yeah. Where I am at is I think Stephen Avery didn't do it. And I do think that the police planted evidence. I really do. Only because from other cases, it's not just this case. Like these cops are just not, they're not acting in good faith. And the prosecutor at this time was not acting in good faith. I think the Brady violation thing was really stunning the way that they sort of, he, and she makes it, she does it very clearly. Like he provided the stuff so he can say it wasn't a Brady violation, but it was because they mislabeled it. I think that's fascinating. I don't know if I buy her ultimate Bobby Dassey theory. I think the moment in the documentary where I felt like Kathleen Zellner, it felt right to me. And I know that's like a dumb metric. Oh, it felt right to me. But 
when she made a comment about halfway through the series where she said she believes it's not that the cops did everything. It's that the murderer did a lot of stuff and then helped the cops. And that felt right to me. It felt like the murderer was probably also involved in the investigation of the murder in some way, like in maybe they were a witness at the trial. Maybe they were somebody who helped on the search for the car. Maybe they were, you know, I don't want to like use names, but that felt to me closer than this very elaborate Brendan and his stepdad theory, which I don't know how the stepdad is actually like ended up being fingered, but whatever. I mean, Bobby and his stepdad, uh, but yeah, that felt the closest to me. So I'm I I don't think Stephen Avery did it, and I think the thing Kathleen Zellner says about innocent clients is the testing that he's been willing to put himself through. Like we all know that lie detectors are total BS in terms of evidence. We also know that a lot of liars don't want to take lie detector tests, right? Mm, yeah. And Avery is willing to put himself through all of these tests, which I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying he's a perfect person, but I don't think he did this crime. Where are you on him, Kevin? I didn't see anything that. Um convince me that he is innocent. I don't know if he did it. I don't believe the elaborate police conspiracy theory of moving cars, planting DNA, putting blood in. Certainly, I don't see why they would believe there wouldn't be actual physical evidence at that crime scene if they believed that he was the murderer. I'm not. I'm really not buying it. I, I, I'm sorry. Would you I hire just... Kathleen Zellner to defend? Oh yeah, yeah I, probably, yeah, I would. <laughs> I mean, that's my question. Would you Would you let her be your lawyer? Sure. Yeah, because in a hot you, minute, in a hot minute, because you want you want if, if you want to get out, and so. But I'm just not. I'm just not buying it. It's it, she points out a lot of interesting things about different pieces of evidence, but they're all separate puzzle pieces that but don't. She fit doesn't with one tell another. a good story. Is that what you're saying? She's doing what she accused String of Uting of. She's not telling a story that convinced you. Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's tell our listeners if they haven't yet checked out Making a Murderer Season 2, should they? I'm sure if they've listened to this whole podcast, they probably have. Uh, Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down on Season 2 of Making a Murderer? Uh, I'm thumbs up. You should watch it. It's definitely interesting to get this window into the defense. I love Brandon's super earnest, dedicated lawyers. I love Kathleen Zellner. I, like I said, waiting for her to um, get her scotch and her cigar and like shoot her gun. She's she's pretty badass. There is a lot of filler. So I think, you know, there are times where I kind of was like, okay, let's move this along. But um, overall, it's, it's a really interesting um, look at the case. All right. So Toby, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down uh, on the second season of Making a Murderer? Uh, I'm a little bit conflicted. I thought parts of it were really interesting. I think if it had been half as long, it would be an easy thumbs up. Uh, I think there was a ton of filler. Uh, I think I've sort of said my piece about how I, I don't really trust the filmmakers. That being said, there's some really inside, interesting inside look about the way the sort of post-conviction stuff is handled. So, you know, I give it the very like I I don't want to give it a thumbs down, so I'm giving it a thumbs up. But you know, if it was a, it's a thumb not very far from <laughs> sideways. <laughs> yeah, I'm a thumbs up, but I just want to say, if I were ever uh, happen to be sitting at like an airport bar and I found myself sitting next to an executive from Netflix. Mm-hmm. I would give them this advice because this is like the seventh thing we've watched that I felt this way about. You got to let go of the idea of X number of episodes for these series, because as one sided and as whatever as this was, 
the character portrait of Kathleen Zellner alone in fighting this case would have been an outstanding four or five part series. Mm. Like she is a super compelling protagonist, a very controversial figure. Like we just have so much to say that we even didn't get to about who she is and how she works. That was all the good stuff. And we had to wait and sometimes in episodes like 10 minutes to get to the next scene of that or 20 minutes. And, you know, all the stuff in the later part of the series was the great stuff. And there was a million things in the middle that could have been cut. So Netflix, please, if you're listening, get these people out of these like 10 episode contracts. Just say season one, season two, season three and make them five, make them six, make them seven. It's fine. It's thumbs up for me. But if you haven't seen it yet, just be prepared to do some fast forwarding through a lot of uh, people giving people perms, uh, <laughs> people sitting around at kitchen tables, like that stuff did not need to be there. We could have had some of it. Trial but prep. Of it. Yes. Nothing like watching trial prep through the window of a conference when you room. can't hear anything. Can't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> watching them back and forth. Yeah. Nothing like watching people driving with scenery passing out the window. I, I want to know how I can get a driver. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I was like, why does she have a driver? I also, you by know? the way, really want that winter hat. Kevin, what about I you? I know. <laughs> I'm very close to where Toby is. I'm a thumbs up, but sort of barely. I don't think you have to rush to watch this. But if you're a completist, of course, you're going to want to see season two. The only thing I'm missing from, you know, on the Brendan Dassey storyline is I really wanted to see the end, the disappointment from the attorneys. Yeah. We followed them all the way through, and that's really the kind of reaction that I wanted to see. How did they take that, knowing that, I mean, this was her life's work, and essentially they're saying it's over. Yeah. How does she deal with that? That's what I really wanted to see. She's so likable. Is she not Laura Ridinger? She is. She is. Um, I think that, yeah, there was a lot of filler. I think all these little scenes could have been tightened up, and I think they would have been just, just as fine. Avery's case remains, uh, you know, very interesting. There's talk about will we do season three, and I'm like, no. no. I'm good. I'm good. Please. Can season three be about Zellner defending somebody else? Just stop. It could be. Would you watch that? I yes, she would probably look fantastic. She would. Especially she always if, looks fantastic. Especially if she's wearing dress pant yoga pants from Beta Brand. <laughs> I think Kathleen Zellner would rock the dress pant yoga pants for Beta Brand. I think she has some. I think she might. She could wear it with a nice... Uh, Boucle jacket. jacket. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then she could go out to the uh, Avery property, shoot her 22 through That's the right. door. I mean, I think she would just... She would absolutely rock the Beta Brand dress, dress pant, pant yoga, yoga pants. pants. <laughs> Remember, these are not yoga pants that look like dress pants. They're they not are dress pants that feel like yoga pants. They, they are, are the dress, dress pant, pant yoga, yoga pants. pants. <laughs> perfect for work. You'll feel so comfortable. They have the faux zipper in the pockets, the front button, the Everything belt Everything dress pants yoga pants should have. Right. They, you, they come in boot cut, straight leg, crop, leggings, as well as a variety of colors. Patterns. Black, navy, gray, khaki, seasonal, limited edition colors. The new ones every month. That's right. When we got these folks to come on the podcast, you were super excited. I was super excited. I love my dress pants yoga pants. Because you already owned them. I did. I wear them to work. All the time on those days, like I have a very casual workplace, you know, I can wear jeans a lot at work and mm-hmm. wear whatever. But on those days where I need to look like I care, <laughs> I wear my dress well, pants. You don't want to feel pants. like you do, yeah. I look a lot like I care. I still feel like I don't. I love the dress pants yoga pants. Visit betabrand.com and use Rebecca's code CRIME, crime. to get 20% off yours. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. That's Betabrand.com. 
Brandon.com, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com. Use code CRIME to get 20% off your dress pants, yoga pants. What else you got, Kevin? Well, it's the holiday season coming up. Can you really believe that? <laughs> November, no. we've got a plan. What about a very thoughtful gift? What can you give the loved one? Give him the gift of an Audible membership. That is a kick-ass gift. And right now is the best time to do it with our special offer. Remember, you can have access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. You can choose three titles every month. You can get one audiobook and two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. I've been listening to The X-Files mm. Audible originals yeah. with David Duchovny and uh, Jillian Anderson, Mitch Pileggi. Really great. I mean, I'm a big X-Files fan. I, the Smoking Man's in it, too. So uh, I'm kind of staying away from those actual books that I should be reading. I'm getting into the, uh, the originals. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, or on your commute. And you can just get them on the go. Enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audiobook library you keep forever, even when you cancel. So right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. That's a really good deal. Yeah. Give yourself the gift of listening while you're at it. It's the best. Give it to yourself and someone on your list. I'm on my list. (laughs) For more, go to audible.com slash crime Crime. or text the word crime to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash crime or text crime to 500-500. It's the joy of getting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking back. I'm sorry. I was looking back to some of the notes that uh, Laura and Toby sent me and it was like, Laura's note, Stephen Avery as a sex symbol. I'm just not sure what to make of this. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. Now it's time to move on to her part of the podcast. A little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. A former New Jersey school superintendent has pleaded guilty to public defecation after being accused of being a serial pooper who left dookies on a high school football field. After his arrest, the papers dubbed Thomas Tremoglini the pooper intendant. <laughs> but his lawyer's not taking this crap. He insists police have their facts wrong. He claims this was the number one time that Tremoglini did a number two on the field. The attorney says the man had a case of runner's diarrhea while jogging through the playing field. He claims he did his duty behind the bleachers and cleaned up after himself. He says Tremoglini is not responsible for any other turn bombs on the field and has the running watch GPS data to prove he wasn't there. Of course he does, because all those frickin' runners love to see where they ran, don't they? The police planted DNA evidence. (laughs) All right, panel. Tremaglini paid a $500 fine to wipe up his legal mess. What other punishment should he have faced? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Well, it's reminding me when I was in college, one of the fraternities um, for their initiation for the for the new class, um, they had to watch like Christmas Vacation by Chevy Chase over and over until they could memorize every line. So I'm going to suggest that he needs to watch American Vandal season two <laughs> while drinking kombucha nice. to help him stay regular. <laughs> what about you, Toby? What other punishment should the pooper intendant have faced for his alleged crime? I would just withhold the TP for months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin, I'm going to say that the pooper intendant uh, who suffered allegedly from runner's diarrhea should have to, I don't know, listen to some runners talk about how much they love running and an endless loop. Like, so he could throw up too? 
<laughs> it's like a Geneva Convention. <laughs> thing <about that>. Kevin, <laughs> what about you? What do you think another punishment should have been? Oh, obviously, he should go out and have to fertilize the field. <laughs> With actual fertilizer? Yeah, we uh, Scots. All right, we should probably end it on that note, but before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do have a cat of the week this week, and this one's for Kevin. It is from Jennifer Burnell. Please consider Marcel Burnell, cat of the week. 16-year-old short-haired domestic cat with diabetes, kidney, and heart disease. A badass kitty monster, and this is why it's for Kevin. It is a Red Sox fan who has comforted and tormented her for 15 years. (laughs) Go Sox. P.S. She's married to a Dodgers fan. We are fine. We coexist. And Marcel (laughs) has his little Red Sox outfit on while watching the game. Oh, Kevin, that sounds like your kind of cat. Yeah. You don't even like cats, but you would like that cat, wouldn't you? We could coexist. All right, Laura Bricker. People want to submit to you their dogs or cats or hedgehogs or koalas or other animals to be cat slash pet of the week. How can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, people want to tweet to you to commiserate how much they also don't trust the documentarians behind Making a Murderer. How can they find you online? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, people want to reach you. How can they do that? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow this show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can find it by going through our regular old Facebook page. It's probably the easiest way. Go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, and support this show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get access to Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast and Laura Bricker's Rage Walking True Crime Fitness Fun Group. You can also get a free month of Stitcher Premium when you go to stitcherpremium.com slash crime and use the code crime. When you do, you'll get access to Married with Podcast, me and Kevin's other little show that we make in this closet. Our theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where I do my nails to try and look as baller as Kathleen Zellner. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Um, I just, this is, I'm traumatized. Ken Kratz is following me on Twitter. <gasps> what? Yeah. What the fuck? So I, I looked up Kathleen Zellner and it says other people you should follow. And it says Ken Kratz. And then it says Ken Kratz follows you. And then it says followed by no one you know. Oh. And then uh-huh. it says attorney, legal consultant, author of Avery, the case against Stephen Avery. But he's like posting all this like crazy the national media couldn't wait to bury this. I'm like, oh my God, what are you, oh. is he following you guys? It's Ken Kratz. He's Ken at seven. Yeah. He follows me. <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh my God. Why is he following Why us? Following us? <laughs> Toby, Stop follow following us? me. Toby, does he follow you? I'm oh, I'm so right disturbed. Now. Oh yeah, he does. He does <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. First Scaramucci and now Ken Krauts. Oh, Who's next? Oh my god! How many people is he following? Uh, following only people. 107 people, We're and he's following one. us. <laughs> he follows me too. Oh, Colin Miller. He follows Colin Miller. He follows Susan Simpson. <laughs> 
the four of us are among... We're like 4% of his followers. We're right. social media influencers on, on him. him. <laughs> I mean, imagine how thin his, uh, his, his news feed is. He follows Laura Richards and Jim Clemente. He follows Bob, Bob Ruff. Ruff. He follows President Trump. He follows Undisclosed. He follows everybody who hates him. And President Trump. <laughs> and the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> and the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> Check out Wild Fang, a feminist fashion brand that's here to take down the patriarchy and is committed to giving back. That's right, Kevin. Wild Fang is female-founded and women-run, offering gender-smashing styles that borrow from the boys. A percentage of every purchase at wildfang.com goes to charity, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars each year to fight for your rights. Go to wildfang.com and use code CRIME for 25% off. That's W-I-L-D-F-A-N-G.com and use CRIME for 25% off. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. 